Dr. Ian Jordan, who is the Better Space Chief Medical Officer and the inventor, can I call it that, of the six pillars. Um, so let's just start by if you can just introduce yourself and what you do professionally and also um, what you do for Better Space. Sure. So I'm a, so a psychiatrist by training um, and I work. I spend most of my time working as a clinician in Oxford and, uh, and a lecturer. And the rest of my time I spend with Better Space as Chief Medical Officer. So I do a few different things. So I've developed the framework of the pillars that Better Space is based on. Um, and currently I am convening a team of expert advisors on the, on the pillars. Okay. Um, and talk to me a bit about the, the pillars because that is it's a big part of better space, and I think it's, it's it's sort of our core DNA, really. And if you could maybe just talk to us a bit about how you came up with this and and why, and maybe also what they mean to you. Sure. So for about ten years or so, I have been incorporating and these ideas into consultations with patients. I often only get to see patients for quite short periods of time. I don't get the opportunity to do long-term psychotherapy with patients, although I've trained as a psychotherapist. And so I started um, talking through patients, um, talking through what they do day to day. So from the, from the time you get up in the morning to the time you go to bed, and when you're in bed, what, what do you do? Um, and I think what gets lost a little with a exclusively medical model of uh, mental ill health is that there are loads of things that are requirements for mental health that we kind of forget about a bit when we talk to patients about mental disorders or mental illness. So I would ask patients um, what, were they getting good quality sleep and were they doing any kind of exercise or movement during the day? Were they uh, uh, connecting with people uh, that make them feel good? So were they having nourishing social connections? Um, and during the times where they're awake, are they doing things that feel meaningful or enjoyable or where they get a sense of uh, fulfillment or, you know, uh, where they're solving problems and doing the types of things that the brain likes doing? And also, was there a focus of their attention away from themselves? And so, was there a focus either on activity or on other people? Um, and also, when people inevitably feel stressed and overwhelmed, <coughs> that people have a way of ameliorating that stress, so a way of countervailing the corrosive effects of stress. So spend a large uh, portion of the consultation ticket uh, towards the end, once we've kind of formulated the problem and made a diagnosis, if appropriate, then thinking about those things in addition to specific psychiatric or psychological interventions. Okay. And just so everyone has a, has a really clear understanding, um, what are these six pillars? And maybe um, a bit of detail about how they impact us. Sure. So the, the, I alluded to them there. The six pillars are sleep, exercise, connection, meaningful activity, um, altruism or otherishness or a focus on other people, and stress management. So 
what they what they sort of essentially are is the, the stuff of people's day-to-day -day lives the stuff that makes life worth living and the stuff that protects your body and your brain from illness um, and I think we tend not to think about those things we tend to think what's present you know is there an illness present but what we forget uh, is that there may be lots of things missing that are protective yeah really interesting and I think what what I really like to talk about with you and, and what I'm trying to get to through these interviews is to understand the person who I'm interviewing and, and how they apply these six pillars to their lives, often in ways that they don't consciously know they're doing. But I'm sure you have a bit more understanding about exactly what you're doing in each of those pillars. So let's take it back a bit and, and talk a bit about how you got into what you do now. So how did you get into mental health? What was your route in? So I applied in 1995, I applied for medical school with a view to being a psychiatrist. So I always knew that I wanted to work. Um, it was either going to be psychology or medicine with a view to doing psychiatry. <coughs> so that was, that was an interest from an early age. I thought at that time that there could be nothing more um, intellectually stimulating and rewarding than working with uh, mental suffering and uh, what that meant and how that could be alleviated and it looks very different what I do now looks very different to what I imagined I would be doing then but uh, that, that was the journey so I spent uh, six years in medical school and then I trained in medicine for a while because I wanted to have a broad broader understanding than I had in, in medical school so I worked in, in palliative care and neuropathology for a few years and then moved into psychiatry um, about 15 years ago or so. And I've been doing that ever since. Because often when I think of psychiatry, it's not it's not generally positive thoughts. It's more um, men in white coats dishing out antidepressants, and they they tend not unless I'm um, hugely biased, which I don't think I am. They tend not to have this holistic view. Of mental health that you have and what do you think are the reasons that psychiatry is, has got that reputation as, as one of um, it's it's very clinical and it's very this is what you have and it's very diagnostic and it, and it seems to only um, it seems quite narrow-minded and focusing very much on uh, one aspect of a disease which which um, may be sort of more observable and not so much about possible trauma or other extenuating circumstances, lifestyle factors. Um, why do you think that is and how can we how can we move forwards from that? Well I think that there are as many different types of psychiatrists as there are different types of any other uh, person and profession. My own leaning is certainly towards a uh, a much more comprehensive view of why people become ill and mm. um, why people stay well that includes these lifestyle uh, and, uh, and and life factors that we've been talking about but also includes things like context you know so how does your um, how does the context in which you reside affect how you think about yourself in the world and that includes what the family that you come from and the society that you live in your experience of trauma abuse and discrimination uh, and I think any view of individual suffering that doesn't take those things into account um, is, is not sufficiently comprehensive. But, but because 
psychiatrists are doctors uh, and because for some decades now in a medical view of individual suffering has predominated, uh, I think there is a tendency to take the other view. But in, in all areas of medicine now, if you look at the trend in research over the last 10 years particularly, there is a trend towards viewing the social determinants of health um, and the psychological determinants of health as well. So that I think that there is certainly a movement in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, but but I think I think that's you know for for a variety of historical reasons, psychiatry has been used um, as a uh, as psychiatric psychiatric patients have been treated using a framework that I think it, I agree is overly narrow, but which is changing. Well, let's talk about how it's changing because obviously, I mean, better space. We're we're right at the we're right in the middle of this kind of new wave of mental health awareness in in the UK and and, and actually in, in the world as well. How do you feel about that as someone who works professionally in mental health? What's it like to be watching this sort of? It feels almost like an awakening. Um, is, is that a good thing? Is it is are there dangers there? It was a very, very exciting time, absolutely, and, I, and I, you know, a, a lot of the work that I do outside of my NHS work is looking at that broader view of mental ill health. Um, there are certainly dangers. Um, I, you know, if, if a medical model of mental ill health is an oversimplification, then any other individual view of mental ill health is also an oversimplification. There is a risk that people with particular uh, presentations that may represent syndromes that do look like illness um, rather than you know a sadness or unhappiness or you know any 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 other um, extreme of normal experience there's a risk that they those people may get left behind if the pendulum swings too far the other way so there is no doubt I mean I work with patients who have very severe um, psychiatric and neuropsychiatric presentations um, and those and people with complex physical uh, ill health and uh, in associated with complex medical Ill health and those people for sure need uh, a health system to take care of them that includes psychologically informed care um, medical staff who are uh, who are able to deal with complexity psychiatrists um, neuropsychiatrists, occupational therapists, nurses, social workers. Um, so it would be a grave mistake to oversimplify uh, the types of patients that I see by saying that those people don't need a medical model at all. There, there is a place uh, where that is terribly helpful and, and does, you know, does help lots of people. So let's talk about what you do personally. Uh, your own mental health and how you maintain your hopefully good mental health. Um, what are some of the things you you do on a on a daily or weekly basis to to stay well? Well, I'm I am a, a evangelical about uh, the pillars. I think that they're absolutely fundamental. So I absolutely make sure that I get good quality sleep. Not getting sleep is the absolutely quickest. Uh, way to become um, emotionally, mentally, psychologically, psychi even psychiatrically unwell. 
it may be the only absolutely 100% definite way that you can make somebody sick is by depriving them of sleep, um, short of you know injecting them, injecting them with a toxin. So I, I've been bad for the last couple of weeks actually, unusually, but generally speaking, yeah, sleep is, is, is absolutely fundamentally important. And how much are we talking? We're talking for me, seven to eight hours a night. Okay. Um, I try not to do catch up at the weekend, but that can be difficult with a, with a busy week. Um, and I and and I, uh, I I feel the same way about exercise. So I the, the almost uh, seven days a week I do some form of exercise. Um, my mantra is that uh, you should get anaerobic every day. So out of breath every day. So really interesting. So whether that so so what that can mean is that four days a week you do you know ten or twenty minute intervals, mm-hmm. um, and on the other days some form of uh, aerobic or strength training um, that includes a high intensity set. But I think it's I think it's important for I think increasingly we're seeing that that throughout medicine and especially in the in complex syndromes like uh, fibromyalgia. The exercise is fundamental to recovery and good health. So I think it's a. I I I don't think you, I think it's very hard to be healthy without having exercise. There may be exceptions, but they're probably extremely rare. Okay. So those are my two big ones. Yeah. And then having some way of managing stress, I think, is for me the third most important one. So we get a little bit of a lot of stress. You know, we're busy professional lives, mm. um, and even if you're not working in a busy professional life. Or perhaps even more so, you know, people are exposed to the daily hassles of life and raising children and all those other things. And so having a, a toolbox of things that can do that. Um, my the stress and ex- or sleep and exercise are the, are the best for that for me. But then after that, um, mindfulness, though it has been overly commercialized and simplified, I think is absolutely the most fundamentally important tool for knowing yourself and knowing how your mind works and managing day-to-day stresses. So I do, I do a lot of that. Okay. Let's, let's talk about mindfulness and the commercialization of them. Um, we're seeing a huge amount of digital health interventions coming out. Mm. Thousands and thousands of apps on the App Store if you search for mindfulness or mm-hmm. meditation or mental health. And this presents enormous opportunities business-wise and also to help a huge amount of people who previously may not have learned about these kind of things or received help, therapy is very expensive, high barrier to entry, uh, stigma, etc, etc. But there's obvious issues here around um, uncharted territory and people oversimplifying things and people using things perhaps that they shouldn't without the right knowledge. So. What do you think about this proliferation of digital health interventions? Are, are they helpful? Are they sort of overhyped? Um, what, what do you feel about? I think that the, the direction of movement is good. You know, the, the, there's an increasing awareness that this is a useful tool for people to have. Um, my fear and what I've observed is that it's oversimplified to the point <clears throat> where a lot of organisations and professionals are saying to people who are stressed out or overwhelmed or depressed or anxious, they're saying, go do mindfulness effectively. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that is unhelpful. That's a little bit like going to a mechanic to get, in, to get your car fixed and the mechanic hands you a spanner and says, go use the spanner. Um, spanner is a fundamentally important tool, but without some sort of context and explanation and coaching, um, I think it's, it's hard for that to be useful. So 
Um, you know, it's a little bit like saying, go be good at tennis, go do mindfulness. You know, so I always say to people that if, if they can, they should do a uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction course yeah. rather than download an app. Um, though the apps, uh, the, the particular one I recommend for people, which I think we've just put on our platform, is Mindfulness Coach, which yeah. is um, developed by the, the US Department of Veteran Affairs. It's good, it's simple, it explains it well, gives people a little bit of context. So as long as people are given an explanatory framework within which mindfulness makes sense and how it applies to the particular difficulties that they're experiencing, I think it's hugely helpful. But I think just kind of spraying the world with the word mindfulness uh, has the potential for it. mindfulness. 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 Yeah. Where do you stand on therapy? Psychotherapy. Yeah. Uh, I, well, I'm a psychotherapist, and I, again, I think it's a fundamentally important component of um, treatment of mental ill health, mental disorders. Should everyone have therapy? Yeah, good question. Um, I think everybody could benefit from understanding themselves better. One of the common factors across all psychotherapies is of uh, is that it improves it sh what it should do is improves people's understanding of themselves and make the invisible visible as it were you know there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of what goes on day to day there's a lot that isn't accessible to introspection but there's a lot that is if, if people are trained to do so so very valuable should everyone have psychotherapy I, I, I think that there, there needs to be more of a movement in psychotherapy towards common, um, effective processes uh, and components of psychotherapy. Rather, at the moment, there is um, people are siloed usually within their own school of psychotherapy. So I think if if we had a better understanding of what are the processes uh, and components that affect change and make people's lives more satisfying and happier and allow them to. Um, and to deal with the vicissitudes of daily life, then I would say that absolutely. Yeah. Books. One of the most important books you've read, they could be about anything, they can be books that have inspired you, they can be books that have led you to where you are, mm -hmm. they can be books about bicycles, mm -hmm. which I know might interest <laughs> Yeah, yeah, books about bicycles. Maybe, maybe YouTube instructional videos. Right, for okay. Me. Um, so, there are loads of good books uh, on uh, psychology and, um, and, and books that will help people understand themselves. It's important, I think, to recognize that different approaches will work for different people and different... Essentially, a lot of these are kind of... Uh, we use a lot of you know, metaphor and analogy to explain people how their mind works and, and different books will present a different metaphorical point of view. So for instance, The Chimp Paradox uh, is, a, is a really nice and pretty comprehensive view of uh, using metaphors, a view of how emotions work. And that's, that's a great book for people wanting to understand how to manage their inner chimp, their emotions, their inner emotions. That's a, that's a fantastic book. Um, I love, I'm reading Mind Fixers at the moment, which is a fantastic, critical uh, history of psychiatry. Very interesting. I think it's really, really important for people to understand, the con you know, particularly psychiatrists, to understand the context, um, the, the historical context that they that they work in. Um, so those those are two that I would, that I'm that I've recently read that I think are are, uh, are brilliant.
Okay. What for you is the most relaxing way to spend an afternoon? Work's done, you've got nothing else to do, what would you do? So it slightly depends what you mean by relaxing. Um, I know this can be really annoying, but I'm picking apart that's that word. Right. That's <laughs> right. Because <clears throat> what do I mean by relaxing? It's a good question. Um, it might not. Okay, it might not even be relaxing. If you have an afternoon off, well, let's say a day off. Yeah. And you're in London. Yeah. How would you spend that day? So it depends if by relax in that. Do you mean, do I want to feel kind of invigorated or do I want to kind of switch off and switch off the, you know, the you chattering engine if in my you, head? If, you, if we want to go into detail here, yeah. you could spend <laughs> half of the day feeling yeah. invigorated and sort of tailored off to yeah. be relaxing towards the end of the day. How about we do that? Okay, great. I think that's allowed. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to sound pedantic, but th- th- I think no, no, I, I, I think you're right. There's a whole area um, of rest. I think there's a misconception. People think, you know, I'm tired. I must rest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's, you know, that may. That if, if sometimes if people are stressed and burnt out, that that's exactly the right thing to do. But sometimes um, the thing that helps people recover is doing more and more. That's the whole field of behavioural oh, activation. Yeah. Totally so, yeah. Sometimes so, you feel much more energised after you've done some exercise. In fact, oh, you very often do. Yeah. Almost always. In fact, if you're tired. Resting may well be exactly the wrong thing to do, yeah. depending on the situation, it might be the right thing. It's like when you've slept too much or had a very long car journey, you've been exhausted yeah. and you've done That's nothing. Right. That's right. So, for relaxing, okay, so if I, wanted to, if I want to feel invigorated, then absolutely the number one thing is to spend time around uh, my friends, friends and family. Um, I'm a classic extrovert, so if I sort of feel a little bit like that, I'm not talking. Like my brain is kind of switched off. I'm mm. sort of like a, a, a device in power down mode. Um, so that would be absolutely the, 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 I think any day that doesn't involve um, some kind of connection with with someone that makes me feel good, you know, some friend or family, then uh, or a colleague uh, is a day that is you know doesn't feel like a full day. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is is um, doing something that feels kind of meaningful or fulfilling. And that might be reading a book. For me, it's often building bicycles or um, or painting. Um, the feeling of starting something and then finishing it is, uh, is good for the good for the soul, I think. And then the relaxation uh, often involves something like uh, watching a movie, lying on the couch, watching a movie. Sounds good to me. Um, I wrote an article recently about what people do for their mental health in spare moments commuting, waiting for someone mm. in a restaurant. Because I noticed myself using my phone far too much, mm. and, and especially going on news, as I've talked about before, and I, I can't help but see it everywhere I go. When people are, 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 have a spare moment, they can't not yep. be doing something. We're, we're in this world where it's just your attention is constant stimulation. And I wonder if you've got, if there's anything that you do in those moments when you otherwise might be looking at your phone that might be slightly better for you than staring at a screen. Yeah, um, so I'm, I'm a, as bad at that as anyone else, I think, um, but I try to replace looking at the phone. The difficulty is the, the reward is so uh, immediate, mm. um, even if it's not that intense, it's so immediate that it's it's uh, and you know we all know that any behaviour that gets rewarded immediately is a behaviour that gets repeated, um, uh, so it's extremely difficult. 
Um, my, com- my commute at the moment is an hour, and I spend <clears throat> about half of that listening to audiobooks or podcasts, and I spend the other half trying to do some uh, form of uh, guided attention, whether that's mindfulness or whether it's solving some specific problem. Um, I always say to patients that if you're awake, you're paying attention to something. And a good exercise is to make a decision about what you're going to pay attention to rather than let your scrolling news feed or your um, social media account decide for you. So I try to do that. That's good so, to so solving a problem is a good idea. So to pick one thing that you're um, trying to deal with, trying to, you know, some specific problem you're trying to solve for me, it's often how to get a bottom bracket into a stuck um, bottom bracket shell. Yeah. Uh, that's a bicycle. Okay, and uh, and so I'll just I'll, I'll try and think about that for fifteen minutes uh, without my mind wandering. It's it's a sort of a it's a almost a, it, it, it's like mindfulness except that it's ex- explicitly thinking rather than. It was sort of an intellectual puzzle. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like Sudoku. Exactly. Yeah. Whatever happened to Sudoku? Things. Can't happen anymore. No, you don't. Um, and lastly, do you have any sleep tips? Uh, I don't have a huge problem with sleeping, but I do have some sleep tips for when for when things are difficult. So I, I think there are two. So if anybody's having clinical levels of sleep problems, so insomnia, yeah. then by far and away the most effective treatment is CBT for insomnia. There are a number of apps. The Sleepio is is the is the most prominent in the marketplace. It's free for people living in London. It's free and a lot of people in the NHS. Um, so if you're having severe sleep problems where your performance is suffering the next day, then that is, that's great. Um, for me, uh, the, the problem with sleeping tends to be that I'm feeling uh, kind of very switched on. So what we call aroused, but not in the way that you may be thinking. And th- when, you, when you're switched on like that, you tend to ruminate, so you tend to try and think about things. But that's the period of the day where you're least able to work out problems, and so it tends to be that rumination, that kind of tumble dryer thinking. So if you can soak up your attention with something else during that time, then that often turns down the volume on that rumination. So the two things that I do that are really, really helpful. The first is uh, visualization. So uh, visualizing in your head some something compelling, so that might be flying over a city or flying over the ocean uh, and imagining things that are passing by beneath you. And that uses just about enough attention to mean that you can't be thinking about those other things. And the other tip I heard recently that I've used to good effect is to simply start thinking of numbers between 0 and 100. So two-digit numbers uh, in your head, just start randomly generating them. And that, again, soaks up just enough attention to distract from that thinking. Okay. Yeah, it's actually quite, because it's quite, it, t- it turns into quite, like, well, I'm a bit competitive, it turns into a bit of a game, and what happens, or what, what should, what hopefully will happen, is that that will use up enough attention, but yet be boring enough, <laughs> that you'll sort of start to drift off, so, so those are two tips. Great, thank you very much, Dr. Ian Jordan. Thank you.